Siam nostalgia. Hello, my friends and relatives. Welcome to the Friends and Relatives uh, Radio Hour. Satsumtum Sunit Snat, Daryl Hilaire, I'm your host today. Uh, on this show, we hope to share, uh, create, and educate uh, the things we do as Coast Salish people with, with the greater audience uh, living here in the Pacific Northwest. And by doing that, uh, we hope to build a better understanding between uh, peoples and change perhaps some perceptions that need to be changed uh, within the larger community. Today we have uh, Speepots, Chairman, uh, Swindamish Chairman Brian Clasby, who is also the esteemed uh, president of the National Congress of American Indians. So welcome, uh, President Clasby. Thank you, Daryl, for, uh, for having me today. Uh, we'd like to start with uh, what we feel is important, uh, and we've heard that from our elders so often, uh, know who you are and where you come from. And so I'd like to have uh, uh, President Clasby share with us uh, uh, what it was like uh, growing up on the Swinomish Indian Reservations, those things that uh, he'd done as a young person, uh, when he learned how to fish and, uh, of course, play basketball with the, with the famous uh, Swinomish Snaz and later golf and, and those things. And then maybe take us into that, uh, that idea of leadership and uh, were you groomed to become a, a tribal leader and where did you, where did you learn those, uh, those uh, tools, if you will, and actually, more importantly, those character traits of being a good leader? Well, once again, uh, thank you, Daryl, uh, for having me on today. Uh, and of course, I have to give our creator uh, all the credit in the world for, for allowing me to uh, have the greatest job in the world. Mm -hmm. Without him, I wouldn't be here today. So I've got to get hi give him all the glory and the credit for uh, what I've accomplished. Uh, I am 57 years old, uh, born and raised at Swinomish. I live three doors down from the house I was raised in, so I've never lived any other place in my life. Uh, born into a family of six. And so for, I was the youngest of four boys for nine years until uh, my youngest brother was born in 67, then I had a sister born in 1970. So mm. I'm number four of six. And so we grew up on the Swinomish Indian Reservation when there was uh, about a little over 20 homes uh, in the village at Swinomish. So right on, right on that main drag there. Yeah, as soon as you it. come off the bridge, yeah. you had 10 houses on that road. Then we called, we had no name for the, the street below, so we just called it the bottom road. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and so uh, everybody knew everybody. And of course, I uh, grew up in that classic uh, alcoholic home where, uh, you know, the, the, generational trauma uh, caused by uh, the boarding schools uh, was, uh, of course, uh, very detrimental to my family. And uh, I just got records uh, showing my grandfather was still being held captive at age 20 mm -hmm. in Oregon at mm -hmm. a boarding school. And I, I have the letter, I was going to share that today uh, yeah, with my presentation, but it got a little snow delay, so. Yeah. Uh, but at 20, my gr grandfather was born in 1899. And at 1919, they were still holding him as a prisoner at a boarding school in Oregon, and he had enough. 
And so he ran away. And so we got the letter from the boarding school saying that Ernest Cladisby ran away. We know he's heading to Laconner. If you apprehend him, let us know. We'll come and bring him back. And so uh, in 1919, World War I was going on. And so my grandfather made it to Seattle. And instead of having the chance of getting caught and sent back to Oregon to the boarding school, he signed up for the Navy in World War I at 20. And we got the follow-up letter from the, from the school saying that, well, maybe now incorrigible Ernie Cladisby will learn something from the military and they'll turn him into a man. And so uh, we had that historical trauma follow our family for a number of generations. And of course, when you experience post-traumatic stress disorder at a young age, and uh, when you, our elders tell us that you are a, re a reflection of your upbringing. And so the father and mother figure that my grandfather looked to was mainly the Catholic priests and the nuns that ran the school. And they, uh, because uh, he was not allowed to go home, uh, those were the only parent figures that he had in his life. And uh, so he experienced some serious trauma uh, going through that. And when you experience post-traumatic stress disorder, the number one drug that our elders looked to to overcome that post-traumatic stress disorder was alcohol. And so alcohol became part of our family's culture. And so uh, when you looked at the rite of passage that our people followed and the Coast Salish way of life, it was your elders bringing you out on that canoe, your elders bringing you out um, uh, into the mountains, your elders bringing you out into those fields to uh, start doing the things that a young man should be doing. Well, it went from that to, okay, your rite of passage now is you can have a bottle of beer with uh, dad or grandpa or uncle. Right. And, and so we, uh, um, our family was part of that historical trauma and uh, that alcohol that was used to overcome that post-traumatic stress disorder uh, followed generation to generation to generation. So mm -hmm. uh, at four years old, I remember my great-grandfather passing away in our home as a very elderly man. And the, that morning when we found him, he was in his chair and he had passed away and he had a bottle of beer between his legs. At four years old, that was mm -hmm. uh, one of my only yeah. memories of my great-grandfather. And uh, he died as an elderly person. I wouldn't say it was alcohol-related, but he had that bottle with him still. And so that was my great-grandfather. My grandfather followed in those footsteps. My father followed in those footsteps. And so uh, growing up on the Swinomish Reservation, surrounded by alcohol, was something that we just thought was normal. Reflecting on that, what, uh, what kept your family together? Wow. still together today. Only you know? by the grace of God. Yeah. Because uh, it was the classic, and you've seen it. You've witnessed it. Mm -hmm. You've seen it uh, at Lummi. Uh, where you have your classic alcoholic parents and um, basically the only lifeline was welfare. Uh, we were a welfare and a commodity family yeah. growing up yeah. and uh, that was basically the lifeline that kept us going and 
during the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the state was pulling children out of Indian homes like crazy. Right, right. And some of the, uh, my friends who had uh, worked in the 60s and 70s in the state program, uh, being able to see those records and the justifications for kids being pulled out of their homes, I, I was, I'm just shocked to this day that we were able to stay under that roof living in the conditions right. that we lived in because there was, uh, when the elders shared with me from Colville some of the reasons why kids were being taken out of their homes and put into foster care, she said the most egregious one was that family had a dirty front yard. So the mm -hmm. kids mm -hmm. need to be put in a foster care. And, uh, and so uh, it was only by the grace of God <laughs> You know, I had my grandma right below us who was a strong shaker. I guess was, the Lord really heard her prayers. Right. And my other grandfather who lived up on the hill was a Pentecostal mm -hmm. person. And uh, just a lot of prayers for our family, but we came really close. I remember those social workers coming and doing checkups on us. And right. Yeah, you're right. You know, uh, I remember watching some of my cousins. You know, we grew up in Laneville. And mm -hmm. We were all there. It was the same thing, a cluster of homes. and. Uh, some of my cousins getting dragged out of the front door, kicking and screaming. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we think about that in Christianity and the beginning of that, uh, you know, colonization of our people and taking the Indian out of us was part of, the church was part of that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, right next to it is our grandparents praying like crazy yeah. to keep us together, you mm -hmm. know. it's, it's uh, mm -hmm. And we were all Catholic. And yeah. that, was, that was the thing that kept us from away from alcohol and... and uh, kept our families together. Well, well <coughs> very classic, uh, and this happens mm -hmm. not only in our cultures, but you know, around the world. Um, people think they're doing the right thing, but they do it the wrong way. Mm -hmm. If they could have allowed us to continue our traditions, our cultures, our stories, and things like that, and taught us the white man's way of education, because 100, 150 years ago, our education was learning the waters. Our education was learning the mountains. Our education was learning how to provide. And so, uh, you know, the stories that you hear about our elders, when somebody got sick, that would be able to go out and get their medicines. You know, our elders had a PhD mm -hmm. that no university could teach them. And the historical knowledge that they had was tremendous. So it's, uh, I wish we still had a part of that. And I think some of our, our elders still do, but getting back to growing up when I was uh, about five years old, Swinomish became, and this was through the work of Laura, uh, Laura and Tandy Wilbur, Swinomish became the first tribe in the nation to float a bond for $50,000. Wow. And that bond paid for that gym that you ran yeah, many, many, right. many times. It's still there. It's yeah. still there. So yeah. we were the first tribe in the nation to float a bond. Mm -hmm. And so at five years old, uh, that gymnasium became my escape from reality, where I would be able to go. And so, uh, you know, started school at LaConnor, and I loved school. I loved going to school. It, it was something that, once again, that escape from reality, that um, time away from some very uh, tough situations. And uh, But the gym, the mm -hmm. gym was the it place where uh, I really... Uh, looked up to a lot of the elders, the you know the Reggie Edwards and the Wilbur brothers, and uh, all those ones. That was Landy there? Landy was there, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. and so it was 
Landy came a little after, and mm -hmm. I only got to see him on the baseball field. You remember the old baseball field? Oh, yeah. Surrounded by the fence Great up there. Great baseball games. Yeah, there. yeah, and so. But uh, that was uh, uh, growing up and uh, learning how to play basketball was a very important part of my Oh, that was upbringing. so fun. You played for LaConnor High School, and then? I played for LaConnor, yes. And then, then res ball. Then res ball. Res ball. The Swinomish Snaz. Yeah. Well, I was 16 when Charlie Paul started our team, the Swinomish Snaz. Uh -huh. And so we were just kids running around with... With the Hell Divers. Running around <laughs> with the Tulalip Chiefs and the <laughs> Arctic Knights. Yeah, and the yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even having to play against Glenn and Doug and Swinomish sometimes yeah. in the tournaments. Yeah. Yeah, and the, and the Green Boys there and the Lummi Nation. Mm -hmm. and yeah, and so uh, that was... Uh, that was, those were some great times and uh, things I'll remember always. Uh, sports was a big part of my life. But, uh, school was a big part of my life too. And mm -hmm. even though my mom um, was alcoholic, uh, she seen the importance of education for some reason. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though we had some tough times, like you said, we stayed together, uh, we, we survived and uh, when I was a, a senior in high school, just starting my senior year, my mom and my dad were both on their deathbed from cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, mom was 40 years old and dad was 43. And they were both dying in the hospital. And it was very tough. And the doctors told them, keep drinking and we'll bury you within a year. Uh, stop drinking and you might have a chance to get another 20, 30 years. And that was in 1976, and Dad is 83 now and still going strong. Still going strong. Mom did make it uh, 20 more years, but she died of lung cancer in 1996, mm. and that was probably a result of her starting at 13 years old, smoking cigarettes, Paul Malls and all those without the filters, yeah. and smoking for, you know, 25, 30 years. And mm. But, it, you know, it's probably lingering. So uh, even though... Uh, you know, we had tough times. Our family stayed together, and uh, I got to witness my parents overcome alcoholism, which was very cool. Mm -hmm. And it That's really, awesome. it really made a big difference for my two younger siblings, uh, who at that time in 1976 uh, was uh, nine and seven. So they got to experience the rest of their growing up years with uh, drug and alcohol free home. So. Well, praise God. Yeah. So uh, where did this whole idea of leadership come from? That's a good question. Uh, I remember early on, uh, eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, I remember that um, I wanted to be out front for our class. Like in eighth grade, for example, I wanted them to vote for me to give the eighth grade graduation speech. A good friend of mine, Donnie Huddleston, uh, got the speech. I can remember in um, high school wanting to be the class president uh, for the class. So uh, I remember uh, Laura Wilbur uh, asking me to, as a young high school student, to help co-chair cleanup day. And so that, was a, that made a big impact on me. And, uh, and so uh, I, but I didn't really uh, start thinking about it until around 24 years of age when I thought I want to be on the Senate. And I can remember at that time uh, telling one of my really good friends, and I was still, so uh, from, for about 20 years, I was into my drugs and alcohol. Uh, just once again that, mm -hmm. uh, 
that uh, historical trauma being handed down generation to generation. And I always tried to wonder why the Bible says in the Old Testament where God says, I will curse your children to the third and fourth generation. I, I always wondered about that because the Bible says that you will not pay for the sins of your parents. And so, but doesn't make sense, God, why are you cursing the children to the third and fourth generation? I don't think it's that he was cursing, but it was a choice that we were making to follow in the footsteps of our parents. Uh, the great-grandfather alcoholic, so the grandfather was alcoholic, so the father was alcoholic, so I was alcoholic. It became and normal. It, yeah, it, it, was, it was handed down. It's not that God was cursing us. We made the choice in what we did. And so, well, thank God at, uh, at, at, you know, at 24, when I was making the decision, I was still doing drugs and alcohol, but I still wanted to be the leader. And I remember one of our good friends, Dave Edwards, I told him, and you know, we were partying, and mm -hmm. I told him, I says, you know, one day I'm going to be the chairman of Swinomish, and he laughed at me. It was so funny. <laughs> I remember it. He's laughing. Yeah, you right. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so that was, uh, I don't know, I was almost uh, prophetic, I guess. And, and yeah. you kept following the leads from people that were asking you to do things for the people? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, did a lot of a lot of work and I had some really good role models to look up to in the leadership and I think Will Walton was probably one of the the best role models I had. Landy James was probably the number one role model in my life so he moved back in the 60s to Swinomish and uh, started teaching school and uh, that man probably made the biggest impact in my life. Uh, he was uh, he was a coach at Laconer. He was a coach and a teacher. So he was my football coach. Um, he was my baseball coach. Uh, Dave Edwards was our not our friend Dave Edwards, a different Dave Edwards was our basketball coach. And but Landy made a huge impact on me. Oh, what did he say? Well, he was uh, he he never ever tore anybody down. He never ever was condescending. He never ever was uh, trying to make you feel inferior to him or out of place. He was always, he was the biggest self-esteem builder of any man I knew. Always lifting you up, telling you could be better, you can do better. And uh, I remember one time he came into our council meeting and uh, he put a box with a mirror in it and said, I want all the senators to go over to that box and say, I am great. You are great. And it was pretty, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but in, uh, he was my biology teacher my freshman year in high school. And every day um, he'd make us open up our notebook at the end of every class and we'd have to write a journal of everything that we hmm. did in class that day. Every day we had to do a journal. And to this day I've got, you know, been on, uh, jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, been on council 32 years. And I'm a copious note taker. I just, just just from that one little just, lesson. Just from that freshman in high school, having to do a journal and taking notes. Any meeting I attend, I take notes, and it's just something that uh, followed me. And I credit Landy for that. And there's a lot to be said about listening, writing, and repeating, and that was very important him to instill that that I only want I not only want you to hear it I want you to write it and I want you to read it and say it I mean those three things 
really make a big impact on memory. Well, bless his soul. And Laura's yes. and, yes. and, and well, Walton. Uh, late, late Bobby Joe. We'll be right back uh, to uh, friends and relatives here on 102.3 KMRE Spark Radio. My name is Daryl Hilaire, and uh, you're listening to our visit with uh, Speedpots uh, President and Chairman Brian Cladisby. <laughs>
Siam Nostalgia. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Friends and Relatives Radio Hour. Satsumtun Sunasnat. My name is Daryl Hilaire, and today we're talking to Spipots, NCAI President Brian Clasby, who's also the chairman of the Swinomish Nation. Brian, we're in to the Trump presidency, what, two, three weeks now? And, and there's a lot going on, uh, of course, we can follow that in the, in the media. But uh, as you're moving forward here, I understand that you're part of the, or talking to, or part of the Trump transition team. Uh, and maybe you can share with our audience what the, the new presidential environment's like. I know uh, during the Obama administration that uh, that, was, that was pretty uh, inspiring to see tribal leaders, yourself and others, uh, uh, working with the president quite often, it was a, it was a real consistent uh, agenda that you guys had going, and maybe you can share what that agenda was, and maybe how that carries over into the Trump presidency and some of those things that we can look for in the coming year. Sure, thank you, Daryl. And uh, I think just to wrap up the last segment, mm -hmm. uh, something that I'm very very proud of. So I've got two grandkids; they are nine and four. Isabella is nine. Nathaniel's four. And what I'm most proud of. Uh, they say it takes two generations to break a cycle. So my dad quit drinking in 76, I quit drinking in 89. I've got two daughters that'll be 39 and 34 this year, neither of them do drugs or alcohol. My surviving three siblings, none of them do alcohol. And so uh, for the first time in 100 years, my nine-year-old and four-year-old grandchildren are being raised for the first time in 100 years in a home that is 100% drug and alcohol free. They'll never, ever experience historical trauma the way my wife and I did, mm -hmm. the way uh, a lot of people did. Uh, but one thing, we have to teach <coughs> them, though, historical trauma. That's the problem with our school system today. They do not teach history adequately. And that was going to be part of my speech today, laying out some of the historical facts and where historical trauma come in. But that's what I'm most proud of today going forward that my kid, grandkids are being raised in that home. So the cycle's been broken. The cycle's been broken. Yep. Yeah. So thank you for allowing me to wrap that up. And uh, I'll be quite honest with you. Me along with 99% of the rest of the people in the world did not think we'd have President Trump today. And so it was probably one of the biggest upsets in political history. And I'm not even sure if his team thought they were going to win. Because when they came in, and we've got friends, uh, of course, as the president of NCAI and chairman of Swinomish, uh, we are independent. We, uh, we support politicians that support us. So we have friends on both sides of the aisle, at the local, uh, the county, the state, and the federal level. And so we've got to play both sides of the aisle. We can't be just solely Democratic, solely Republican. We have to be independent thinkers. And so uh, people are wondering how we're going to react at NCAI to the Trump administration, the same way we reacted with the Obama administration, same way we reacted with the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, Bush won, the Reagan administration. We have, um, our issues are solely tribal issues, 100%. And so we don't veer off like a lot of people do when they 
make their politics either based on God or gays or guns or something like that. We're single issue where our focus is 100% on tribal issues and improving the lives of tribal members across the nation. So our transition documents that we've prepared for every single president reflects our priorities focusing 100% on being able to increase the infrastructure, increase the benefits, and hold our trustees' feet to the fire when it comes to providing uh, the services that were promised to us in the treaties that we signed. So I think the, uh, the one issue that we're concerned the most about right now is the Affordable Care Act. And so if you know the history of that, in 2010 when the Affordable Care Act was passed, the Indian Health Care Improvement Act was passed along it. with it. Yeah. And so for 17 years, we tried to get the Indian Health Care Improvement Act as a standalone reauthorized in D.C. And our issues should not be partisan, but they were made partisan in D.C. for some reason. So uh, when Obama introduced the Affordable Care Act, some of our friends uh, attached the Indian Health Care Improvement Act to that bill uh, so it would be reauthorized forever. So we'd never have to s go back there year after year after year and try to get it reauthorized. So our concern right now is, okay, if you repeal the Affordable Care Act, what does that do to our Indian Health Care Improvement Act? Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen is a, a Native American from Oklahoma. Uh, he's one of only two Native Americans in Congress, him and Congressman Cole, Tom Cole right. from Oklahoma. So both of them are uh, Native Americans, both of them are Republicans. And Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen is leading uh, the Native American transition team for President Trump. And so we, bid, we met with him, so his team, transition team, met with us in December before the inauguration. And we were the only uh, group that the transition team met with to talk about the, uh, the, the important issues. And, and, and Congressman Cole and Congressman Mullen uh, understand their role as our trustee. They understand and they've seen and they've witnessed the last eight years with the Obama administration. And Obama, President Obama will go down in history as the greatest president to uh, advocate for Native Americans in the history of the U.S. He, we have a three-page PowerPoint of his accomplishments. Not only do we and have we seen these accomplishments from President Obama, but we've seen some unprecedented accomplishments legislatively, bills that he had signed that we got through both the House and the Senate. Uh, the latest one that he signed on June 22nd was the Trust Reform Act. And if you know anything about the history of the United States and its dealings with Native Americans, it's been a paternalistic attitude that they've showed towards Native Americans where we know what's best for you and you cannot do nothing without the approval of the Secretary of the Interior. And so we're the only government in the U.S. that functions like that. Did the Cobell case uh, kind of like motivate them to do that or, or how did that come about? Uh, of course, uh, the Cabell case was started in the Clinton administration. That was started back in about 1994. Maybe and so you can share with our audience what the Cabell uh, sure. so, case is. Sure. Uh, so what, what has happened throughout the history is we were given reservations 
in exchange for the entire United States. And so we ceded the entire United States to the federal government. And so under that scenario, our re reservations, uh, we do not necessarily own the land. It's held in trust for us by the United States government. So the government, as our trustee, actually holds that land in trust for us. And so over the years, when the Crow tribe would sell timber, uh, when the Navajo tribe would sell coal, or when another tribe would take a natural resource and be able to... Uh, uh, Quinault was a big timber tribe. Quinault was timber. And so what would happen is the BIA would have to take care of all of those sales. It wasn't a tribal function, it was a BIA function, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So they would, they would have to approve the sale. If it was a lease, they'd have to approve the lease. And any money generated would have to go to the BIA. And the BIA would take that money and they would determine the heirs on that property if it was individually owned. And they would, in the best case scenario, cut a check for each of the heirs and send that right back after they received the money. Over a 50 to 100 year period, they mismanaged billions of dollars, money that had never ever got back to the tribal members. So Eloise Cabell sued the federal government for mismanagement of funds. And that case went on for almost 20 years until the Obama administration settled that. And so... And she didn't live to see the settlement. You know? She did not. Yeah. She passed away. Uh, mm -hmm. But she was able to be in the White House with the president when he signed that. We have that picture. So, And so that was probably one of his first major accomplishments as president, mm -hmm. uh, settling that. So he went from Cobell to the trust trust reform bill. And yeah. the, what are the other highlights of the, of, uh, so the Obama administration? Their, uh, taxation is another big issue in Indian country. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we're the only government in the U.S. that allows another government to come into our sovereign territory, our, ex our exterior boundaries, within our exterior boundaries, and take tax money off. And so the IRS started becoming aggressive towards our tribal members. And so uh, there's a form called a 1099. Yeah. And so if the tribe gave you a dollar to do anything, they'd have to do a 1099. So it got so ridiculous that our kids were given scholarships to go to school. They wanted us to do a 1099 on that. Now, if you got a Pell Grant from the federal government to go to school, you didn't have to do a 1099. No. But the federal government said, well, that income generated on the reservation that you're giving to your people, we need to tax it. We would have elders gatherings. You know, we, yeah. we have them. They're very popular. Canoe journey, smokehouse, Canoe journey. Meetings, yeah. So if we had an elder do a ceremony for us and we paid him for that, something he didn't ask for, they'd have to do a 1099. We give our kids braces now. Get taxed. They, our kids have to get 1099. Our elders get a TV at a giveaway for an elder gathering, 1099. And so it got really ridiculous. Powwows, 
If our kids won money at a powwow, ten ninety nine. And so in we worked with Congress and the administration to pass a bill called the General Welfare Exclusion Act. So a government can determine their welfare programs. The United States government does it. The state of Washington does it. And they backed out. The IRS is backing out then. Uh, the IRS did not back out. They no. were legislatively made to uh -huh. withdraw from what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So uh, two years ago we passed the General Welfare Exclusion Act, which was uh, very historic because on that bill we got 100% of every Republican and Democrat in the House and the Senate to support that bill. 100%. Nobody voted against it. And the President signed that bill. So that was pretty much the high watermark for us on legislation. Uh, we, we had the... Because the Republicans were stopping everything. They, they, it was a Democratic uh, initiative. They'd, they'd say no. Yes. But, but you guys convinced them that this, yes. was a, this is a thing to do. Yes. And that's why we have to think independent as tribal nations. We cannot you know, just show that we're supporting one party over the other. We have to do a report card of every politician out there, and we have to look on how they voted on native issues. On the very, on the very fundamental um, side of things, it's, it's like they need to know and understand treaty rights mm -hmm. to even get to first base with mm -hmm. them. So mm -hmm. that's been, that's a constant part of your job, I'd imagine, because yeah. as administrations turn over, then they have probably minimal understanding of what treaty rights are and their responsibility to the United States Constitution. So what we need to do going forward with the Trump administration, because for the first time since 1928, we have the House, we have the Senate, and we have the White House controlled by Republicans. And so, you know, this is a different administration. Only by the fact that this is the first time in history we elected a president that has zero governmental experience whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And so, once again, uh, the late Billy Frank, Jr., uh, he said, uh, we have to tell our story, tell our story, tell our story. And we have to educate, educate, educate. And so what we need to do going forward is remind our congressmen and senators the great work we've done the last eight years. We have to educate this administration on the great work that has happened in the, late, um, in the next eight years. Some of the things that we're, uh, we're really worried about is what they're going to do with the EPA. Uh, for some reason, it is very sad that, uh, that they can be so anti-environmental. It's, it's, we don't get it. We don't understand that. And uh, we don't understand that value. Where they're so it's a corporate value, isn't it? I believe so. It's, it's, um, it's based on a pollution-based economy where you cannot make a dollar without hurting Mother Earth. And that's what we've seen the last hundred years, a pollution-based economy where the government has allowed... Uh, and if you look at the statistics today, right now, 40% uh, of the world's population today is dying from water, air, and soil pollution caused by man. And so we're really worried about the potential rollbacks that EPA has put in place the last, ever since it was uh, created by President Nixon and with uh, uh, Mr. Ruckelshaus, who lives here in Washington, being the first administrator of EPA and uh, some of the things that we've 
put in place since the 70s potentially could start being rolled back because uh, you know some of the um, Republican Party members do not feel there's a strong need for the EPA today. So we've already got word that they're potentially going to be cutting $1 billion out of some of the most important funds that tribes access through EPA. So it's... As and, we're and, trying to clean up watersheds and, and clean up bays and... And one individual that you know up here, Doug Erickson, he's on Trump's transition team right now for EPA. And he's back there. And he's back there. And so uh, one of the things that we're hearing is that he might be looking to get the uh, EPA Region 10 job as the administrator. And so he would oversee uh, 270 tribes in this region. It's the largest number of tribes in this region. So you know Senator Erickson better right. than I do and right. his, uh, his thoughts towards natives. But once again, we will work with whoever's in place. Uh, we will continue to advocate for our positions and we will continue to be at the door. So. Is, is that word getting through? I think Carlisle Begay is the uh, White House uh, well, tribal advisor. We still have yet to officially hear that from the Trump administration that he has been appointed to that position. We've been hearing stories and he's been putting it out there. But in a call last week to D.C., we still officially haven't got something, a press release saying that he is in that position. Uh, we do know that, um, that Representative Zinke uh, out of Montana will be the next Secretary of the Interior. And we look forward to working with him. And uh, I'll be back in D.C. next week giving my final State of Indian Nations address. And the uh, Senator uh, Danes, I believe, I might, from North Dakota. No, Danes is from Montana. Now I just had one of those moments. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a new uh, chairman of the Senate Committee on, on Indian Affairs is from North Dakota and he will be giving my uh, response speech after I give my State of Indian Nations next week. Siam Nasalcha. Hello my friends and relatives. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Friends and Relatives Radio Hour. Satsantun uh, Sunasnat. My name is Daryl Hilaire and today we're talking to SPEPOTS, NCAI President Brian Clasby who's also the chairman of the Swinomish Nation. Brian, maybe you can share with us uh, um, the state of the Indian country address that you're gonna make in D.C. next week, and uh, those things that uh, maybe we could reflect on from last year, and then what we hope to see in, in the coming, coming year or the remainder of the Trump administration. Sure, once again, it's, uh, it's an honor to be here with you today. And uh, I am in the fourth year of my presidency as president of the National Congress of American Indians and each year I get the opportunity in D.C. to give the State of Indian Nations address and I will be doing that uh, Monday uh, in D.C. and uh, if you want to go on to the NCAI website you can get the uh, information to watch it live. Uh, live it'll be live streamed and I'll be doing the speech at the museum. The museum in Washington D.C. is where I hold my speech. And, and so it's just an opportunity to reflect on the accomplishments that we've uh, seen. And of course, uh, uh, the biggest one was the uh, passing of the 
the bill that the president signed on uh, January 22nd. And so we will also lay out our plans for the Trump administration going forward and some of the things that we uh, expect to work on with the administration. And like I said earlier, you know, health care is a big one. Uh, we have a bill called the Tribal Sovereignty Labor Act. Uh, that's a big one. And so we will just be given an opportunity to not only talk to the president, but also to Congress. And uh, the senator from North Dakota will be giving the response speech to my speech. So we, it's, it's, it's a good time. It's a, it's a great opportunity to showcase some of the work that other tribes are doing around the nation also and to give a shout out to them for the strong governance programs that they are, they are working on. So uh, in the uh, presentation of this speech, I understand it's your last State of the Union speech. Yes. Your, your, your term is up. And maybe yes. you can explain a little bit about that. And Sure. Uh, I was uh, first elected in 2013 in Tulsa, Tulsa City, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And out of 20,000 votes, I won by 25. So it was a very, very close election. That's a whisker. It is. And... Uh, I jokingly tell people I would have won by 26 if Nina voted for me. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. she knew the commitment that we would both need to take on in order to do this job. And uh, we, we committed 100% to it. My tribe committed 100% to it. You know, my council backed me. And that's very, very important. And so, uh, so they, I, I, I served two years. And so in 2015, I ran for re-election. One by acclamation, nobody ran against me. And so this is 217 now. In October, we'll have another election for another president, and I'll be termed out, and I'll be able to take a deep breath. And play a little bit more golf. Play a little bit more golf, yes, mm. yes. So well, my, my good friend, Ray Halbritter, from, is the chairman of the Oneida Nation, said two things are going to happen. He said this in 2013 after I won. He says, number one, your hair is going to go gray, and number two, your golf game is going to suffer. I says, Ray, my hair will definitely go gray, but no way is my yeah. golf game going to suffer. <laughs> he was right on both counts. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, in, in conclusion, maybe uh, what I'd like you to do is maybe share some, share some thoughts uh, for our young people. Get maybe some advice or maybe a story about those things to expect as they take those steps towards uh, providing leadership in their own communities? So President Obama, he made visits to Indian country and he made a commitment to our native youth to try to do more for them. And I've had the opportunity to witness about 1,500 youth from around the nation, native youth, including our uh, youth from Lummi and Swinomish Mission throughout the Northwest to go back to D.C. and be able to meet with Michelle Obama. And it was phenomenal. These kids were just so awesome. And when President Obama went to Standing Rock and met with the youth there, he was, he was, he said to us tribal leaders at our annual gathering, and uh, I have to tell you that President Obama met with tribal leaders eight years in a row, where he sent out 567 invitations to every tribal leader, said, please come back to a meeting with me. And he did that eight years in a row. And I was fortunate to have been able to 
attend all eight of those. And this last one, I was uh, able to, uh, along with the chief from Mohegan, be able to put a Pendleton blanket around him and present him with a cedar hat. And give thanks. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was at one of these meetings where one of the youth from Standing Rock, similar upbringing I had. Parents were alcoholic and drug addicts. Father was a deadbeat. Dad was never around. Um, him and his three brothers had to grow up in some very tough situations. So at, at 18, when he graduated, he left, left home. And he moved to Tacoma to live with his uncle. And not long after he got to Tacoma, he got the phone call. Your mother died of a drug overdose. Your three brothers will be moved into foster home because there was nobody to take them. At 18 years old, he had to make a decision. What do I do? Stay here in the comfort of this home with my uncle where I, for the first time in my life, have a stable home? Or do I go back to Standing Rock and raise my three brothers? He made the decision to go back to Standing Rock and raise his three brothers at 18 years old. It's incredible. When I met him at 21, it was in Washington, D.C., when we had a group of youth that were at the White House with Michelle Obama. And he said, if I got paid for every meal I cooked, every dish I cleaned, every clothes that I washed, Every time I had to get on the boys to do their homework or get them up for school, he said, if I got paid for all that in the last three years, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> and, but uh, I just was back in Standing Rock this last summer, and I actually ran into him at, uh, in the town there, right outside of Standing Rock. I think it's in Bismarck. And he came up to me, and he was working in one of the hotels there that I was staying at. And it was so great to see him. He's still doing great, still raising his brothers. He says it's a struggle. He's got two jobs, but he made the decision to do it. And so, you know, that's an excellent story for our youth to hear because he made the choice early on that he didn't want to follow in the footsteps of his parents and be a drug addict or an alcoholic. And he still isn't to this day. And it's all about choices. And so our kids have to be strong enough to want to make the choice of being drug and alcohol free. And that's how we destroy historical trauma. And uh, we're, the tool that we're using at Swinomish, and this is so important for our kids, is education. Even though education was the genesis of the majority of our historical trauma through the boarding schools, we're going 180 degrees full circle now where education is going to be the key to destroy historical trauma. That's what worked in our family. You know, I graduated, my girls graduated, now my kids they'll graduate. It'll, it'll just be a no-brainer. Whereas my parents might have made it to eighth grade, my grandparents probably not even eighth grade, my great-grandparents, you know. So. And they're not carrying that burden into the classroom. Mm -hmm. They're able to really Yeah, focus. that, that yeah. baggage, yeah. all that baggage. Yeah. yeah, so that would be the message. Um, choice, choice, choice. Make the right choice. Mm -hmm. And don't be a follower, be a leader. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank it was you. a beautiful, beautiful message, uh, truly inspiring to all of our youth today. And 
We'll be sure to get the word out on uh, the, the State of the Union and this message to our youth. Uh, I'm Daryl Hilaire uh, Satsumton, and thank you for joining us today in the Friends and Relatives Hour. Aishka, thank you. Thank you.